0: Father, thank you for bringing us together again this morning. Thank you for the word that we've heard already. And I pray that your blessings would be on our time together today. And I thank you for our church. I pray that you continue to bless those who serve in leadership here. And I pray that you'll bless um, the word as it continues to go forth. May it grow and bear fruit in our lives and the lives of our community and the lives of the wo- in the world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought like, we should probably all take a field trip and go to Andrew's class. I bet that's gonna be a hot one today. <laughs> we'll listen to it online. Um okay, we're in we're in John. And I I'll do this on the fly here because I'm I'm not sure. But I think Do we do we just have two more weeks of after today? I think so. Well. I think you can dictate. Oh really? Yeah. There's no dictating going on. Uh, Anyway, we don't have. We our our time is limited. That's okay. I I told you we we changed the class to John one to four. So we'll we'll keep going. Uh, Back back to John um, back to John chapter one. If you remember last week and the weeks before, we've tried to give some sense of the larger scope of the book of John, especially as that relates to um, how Jesus is being portrayed here. There's some big issues. Uh, Lee Keck, a New Testament scholar, theologian, said that there are several or three coordinates of John's Christology or his thinking about Jesus that come together. One is the theological, that is, what's the relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and God? It's a big question. And the other one is cosmological, what's the relationship between Jesus and the created world? And then the other one is anthropological. So, what does it mean? How do we understand Jesus in relationship to humanity? Um, and, and these are, I mean, those are the big issues, I think, frankly, when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is. Um, and these are, these were massive. Um, theological controversies that uh, surfaced in the first five centuries of, of the church as well, and these were the big issues. Um, I've heard people lament, by the way, you know, the early church they got to wrestle with um, the Trinity, and uh, the Reformation got to wrestle with salvation in the Bible, and we get to wrestle with sex. How great is that? Like, that's the thing we have to wrestle with. Well, no, how can kind of it this. Um <laughs> So you have here in John chapter 1 this emphasis about the Word becoming flesh, taking on that which he, which he was not. And in His becoming flesh, we see there the relationship between the second person of the Trinity and the Father and the second person of the Trinity and humanity. The Word, that is the Word who is co-equal with God, um, takes on that which He did not have. And again, I've said this, but I'm going to flesh it out a little bit. Those were the major theological controversies of the early church. Namely, how is Jesus, how is the second person of the Trinity related to the divine being of the Father if we only talk about there being one God? I mean, this is tricky business when you start talking about the Trinity. There are lots of rocks to crash on. Um, I, I heard something even recently where I think someone was giving a sermon and and, and there, there was no malice involved, There's no, no, no um, subversive intention here, but, but the ways in which Jesus was talked about were, at the end of the day, rather, I don't know, tri-theist or something like that. It. it wasn't Trinitarian. Um, so you can kind of step back and go, that, that takes some working through. But then the other big question that arose toward the end of the 4th century and into the 5th century was, well, what's the relationship of the humanity of Jesus to his divinity? And that's tricky business, too. Because we recognize that Jesus is not a schizoid um, who operates, now I'm going to operate according to my humanity, I'm hungry. Now I'm going to operate according to my divinity, I forgive sins. Now I'm going to do my humanity, uh, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Now I'm going to do something according to my divinity, hey, storm, stop it. Right? Um, so he, he's not a schizoid, he's not operating with a kind of schizophrenic uh, mindset. He's a single subject. And there was some massive duking out that went on in the late 4th and early 5th century regarding the two natures of Jesus. And by the way, when you move into the Reformation period, that particular argument is still really hot, especially between Lutherans and Reformed people, Calvinists and Lutherans, really a hot issue on the relationship between the two natures. How do they communicate with one another? Do the natures communicate with one another, humanity and divinity? Or do the natures only exist in the union and the single subject, Jesus of Nazareth, who is fully God, fully man? These are hot topics. So what you want to say is, and I think this is orthodoxy, though by no means does this in any way preclude complexity with the issue. But the orthodox view is, we don't add verbs. Um, We don't predicate The natures of Jesus. Which is an interesting thing to kind of wrestle with. In other words, we don't add verbs to the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus did this. The humanity of Jesus did that. And we don't add verbs to the divine nature either. The divine nature did this or does that. Or knows, whatever. We don't add verbs. We only add verbs to the single subject. Jesus of Nazareth. Fully god fully man in union with both natures one to the other and these things are born I think in some sense out of the logic of John's John's gospel the word became became flesh so we know as well John tells us no one has seen uh, God the only God who is at the father's side verse uh, um, 18 he's made him known and now all of a sudden John the Baptist shows up on the scene what a wild figure he is um, I we ha- we have one Jesus movie that we watch every year. Um, it's uh, uh, oh, is it Jesus of Nazareth? Zeffirelli's one. Jesus of Nazareth it is the best. I mean, the, it's just it's just the best. And John the John the Baptist in Zeffirelli's version is especially wild. I, li- I like it. Um, and John the Baptist is involved in a baptism a ministry of baptism of himself which was probably related to, the, to ritual purity there in the first century world. They were coming for a baptism of forgiveness and repentance, which makes Jesus' baptism a really um, interesting theological problem, right? How does the sinless one uh, go into the waters of the baptism of repentance? Why does he do that? matthew 's Gospel in a, in a very interesting aside that Matthew does not expound on, he just says it and then moves on that Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness next verse, and then you move on well what does that mean right uh, and i 'm not sure I have my mind around the full, uh, the full um, breadth of what John, of what Matthew's getting at, but I think Matthew and John would say something similar is showing that jesus 's baptism Tells us that Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's identifying with sinners. He's not a sinner, but he's identifying with sinners by going into the waters of baptism with them and coming back out. And in his identification with sinners, that's when the Holy Spirit gets poured out on him. And now he goes on into his ministry to do his particular work. So here's John. John is a voice. Who are you, John? They asked. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not any of those. Are you a prophet? And in a funny way, he says, no, I'm not that either. Well, then what are you, John? And his answer is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I'm just a voice of one who's crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's all I am. I'm a finger pointing away from myself in anticipation of the one who in time would come. There's a famous piece that uh, um, Matthias Grünewald uh, painted that's I think known as the Eisenheim altarpiece. I've not seen it with my own eyes, but it's a famous piece. And it's a triptych as off, as these altarpieces often are, and the scene is rather harrowing. Jesus um, looks awful on the cross. I, mean, I don't know how to uh, you know, can you picture the scene Those, you know? It's it's he looks awful. He's he's got that sort of death green color. Um, he's emaciated. He is cut all over his body. It's, it's, it's a horrific scene. And right underneath the cross to the, I guess we'd say stage right, or however we say it. Um, he, he's to the, this side. Um, and, and you see John the Baptist. And all he's doing is looking out at the audience with a crooked finger and he's pointing to the one on the cross. That's what he's doing. Which is a great iconic representation of what John the Baptist's ministry was. His ministry was one of pointing away. Who are you? Why does he not answer that? It's really not all that important who I am. My identity is not all that important. My identity is solely located in the fact that I am a witness beyond myself to something other. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, making, uh, making straight the pathway of our God. And if you read Isaiah closely, there's some interesting things going on here, but what's the pathway that's being made straight? God's pathway to come back to His people. Remember Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple and there's the temple and all of a sudden what's going who's leaving the back door of the temple? God is, right? God's gone. I'm leaving the temple. I'm not here anymore. The promise on the far side of the restoration of the people after their sin and their restoration was he's going to come back. So here's John saying, my job is helping to prepare that road for for God to come back. For our redemption to come back, for our savior to come back. And then you have uh, this next scene in chapter in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here we go, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Quite a statement here at the beginning of John's Gospel. Telling us something about the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. What is he referring to here? Well, what would have been in the mindset of the people or even within John himself as he writes this, what was the reference to Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Probably Isaiah 53, somewhat, right? The, the suffering servant who takes on his own shoulders the sins of the world. Um, probably Yom Kippur as well, the Day of the Atonement. And if you know about Yom Kippur, um, which is my class and just went through this this past week, Yom Kippur was a, a yearly sacrifice that took place. It was a high and holy day. It was a sober day. It was the day when people would come and they would offer the, the, the main offering of their sin before the Lord. Why? Because of the aggregate force of sin that had built up during the year. Like you know, sacrifices were going on every day. Every day. I mean, the blood was flowing every day at the altar of sacrifice there in the courtyard of the temple. Always going on. But one day of the year, there's a recognition that there's an aggregate buildup of sin and its power and its presence needs to be removed. Both of them. And the power of sin is removed by the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and smearing the blood. And if you remember what Leviticus 17 says, it's it's an interesting phrase here. Leviticus 17 says that there's life in the blood. Why do they present blood? Because life is in the blood. So, and this is a little bit of a, I mean, I'm still trying to get my head around some of these the, the implications of this. But the atoning ritual itself was not primarily the death of the animal. I think we tend to think of it that way. It wasn't primarily the death of the animal. The atoning act was primarily the presentation of the blood. Because the presentation of the blood is where the location of life is, and that's God, in other words, life for life. Life is being presented back to the Father again. And that's why in Leviticus they say, you know, don't, don't eat blood, right? That's God's. Um, provision there. That's only God is the one who has oversight of blood because blood is the very location of, of life. So you had the, the power of sin is removed by the presentation of blood, and basically, and this is really maybe borderline blasphemy, blasphemy but I don't I mean it this way. But it's like the most powerful Ajax there is in the temple, right? I mean, you're bringing stuff every, every day that's cleansing the temple, making it fit for worship, but this is, this is the big spring clean, right? And everything's cleaned again. Worship is clean. We start from ground zero again, and guess what happens the next day? The aggregate force of sin begins to build up again. So you have the the power of sin that needs to be uh, washed and cleansed, purified, but the presence of sin has to be removed as well. And there's another goat. And they take this goat outside of the camp, and in a ritual act, the priest places his hand on the goat in some act of transference, although, interestingly enough, Leviticus never tells us what's going on there, really. Leviticus just says, and you put your hand on, a lot, the details are rarely given in the book of Leviticus for why certain rituals take place. It's kind of frustrating, frankly, but it doesn't tell us a lot why. But we know that he puts his hand on, and then this goat is skedaddled out into where? Uh, the wilderness to meet Azazel. Not a clue, right? I mean, people make, make guesses. What, what is Azazel? Is it the wilderness itself? Maybe. Is it a wilderness demon? Is it the devil? Oh, uh, who's Azazel? Uh, and we're really not sure. All we know for sure is that you don't want to meet Azazel. <laughs> That's all I think we know. Right? You, you, let you go and send us a postcard. Let us know how that went, right? So you have both the power of sin, but what's happening here? The presence of sin is being removed from the community as well. Outside the camp, out into the wilderness, there's a, there it goes. And here's John the Baptist saying, um, Behold, of the Lamb of God who takes away, get that? Who removes the power and the presence of sin. All of the anticipation that we had in the sacrificial system that comes before is witnessing to this moment here. Moving on. Then Jesus... Um, uh, was sta- then The next day John was standing with his disciples, verse 35, and he says again, Behold the Lamb of God. He says it twice. And then he tells these two, you need to go follow Him. And, and now Jesus starts to... His disciples. He's got Simon. um, He has Andrew. The next day, verse 43, he finds Philip. And then uh, he has uh, Andrew, uh, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then they find Nathaniel, who happens to be from Cana. Keep that in your mind, by the way, because we're going to Cana here in a second. And now Jesus has his uh, group together. So that's chapter one. And then when you get into chapter two, we have the first sign In John's gospel. And it's interesting because that's the term that John uses. This is a sign. Signs were meant to elicit faith. Um, Isaiah tells Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, Ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And then uh, Isaiah says, Well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Behold, a woman will conceive and will bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That is a sign. And so, that, so the other Gospels, by the way, don't use this term. This is a Johannine term. Uh, this is a sign for you, um, meant to demonstrate the power of God, the, the presence of God, and also meant to demonstrate for you uh, what, why your faith should be placed into this figure. So it elicits faith, and it also gives you a portrait of the power and the presence of God in our midst. So we're at the first sign. That, that's what we want to do today, and we've got plenty of time to do it. On the third day, um, and let me get to where, my notes here. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Uh, I'm not going to read it. You know the story. Uh, This, by the way, is an epiphany text, right? Did you know that? Uh, They they read these these texts on Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday as well as another epiphany text. This is a text of the unveiling of, of, um, of God's glory. And you know the scene. It starts at a party. It's incredible, isn't it? You're at a party with Jesus. Um they, you know, the Pharisees said he was, he, you know, are you a drunkard? I mean, they asked that to Jesus. Right, I mean, he, I guess Jesus knew how to party. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I guess he did. Um, you know, and so Jesus is at a party and there's all these questions about this text that we don't know. We know that he's in Cana. We know that Nathaniel's from Cana. There must have been some kind of familial relationship between Jesus and um, and, uh, or, or at least between some of the disciples in this, in this family. Um, and all of a sudden, here you are at the party. You know the story well, and they run out of wine. And that's bad. Uh, why does Mary take the responsibility on her shoulders? Remember, Mary comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, Jesus they've, they've run out of wine. Why does Mary take this responsibility on her shoulders? I don't know. I don't think any of us know. Um But we do know that she takes it on her shoulders and that wine and not having enough wine is an especially embarrassing problem in this kind of ancient Near Eastern society. Uh, my mother, she's not here today, but I grew my mother's Lebanese. I grew up in a kind of Middle Eastern kind of home, I guess. And um, I, I can remember angst at parties. for um, <laughs> Uh, when it came to food, right? I was like, we, we just, it, just, it mattered that there was enough food around. And as you can tell, <laughs> we always had enough food around. <laughs> um, so food mattered. And, and, why, and these, these feasts in this day could last up to seven days. I mean, these were, these were long feasts. And the responsibility for the feast was on the shoulder of the groom. So the groom bore the financial responsibility, but also the social responsibility. And here they are somewhere in the feast, and they, they've run out of wine, So Mary comes to the scene to rescue it. And it frankly leads into an episode, an encounter between Jesus and his mother that I think probably makes all moms a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) She tells Jesus about the problem. And then Jesus rebukes her. Mildly, but it's his mama. And he rebukes her nonetheless. This is what the text says. He says to her when she tells him about the problem, What is this to you and to me? Can I give you my pedestrian translation of that? Why is this our problem? Right. Why is this our problem, Mom? But then he gives an explanation of why he's resisting. My time, my hour hasn't come yet. And in John's Gospel, the hour of revelation is always tightly linked to the cross. The death on the cross and the exaltation after his death. So he's saying here that my time hasn't come. My hour hasn't come yet. But we also know something else, don't we? Jesus is about to pull back the curtain and do his first sign. So he's going to acquiesce here. And in his acquiescing, the beginning of his public ministry is out of the gate. And that is a revelation here of his glory. So what's the issue here in John, I think the issue in John's gospel is all of the signs that lead up to the cross, and there are seven of them in particular, but all the signs that lead up unto the cross have the shadow of the cross on them from beginning to the end. All of them. They all anticipate in their building force through the narrative of Jesus' ultimate unveiling of his glory, which is the unveiling of his glory at the cross. So, what does Mary do? There's a sense of expectation here. She kind of backs off. And then she tells people next to them, her, the servants, whatever He tells you to do, you need to do it. Now, I don't want to chase this because we don't have the time this morning, but Mary is exemplary here in her depiction of the life of faith at this moment. I'm going to leave it in the hands of Jesus. And I'm not going to make any presumptions against Him or on him, on the basis of our familial connection. I'm not going to do that. And by the way, just saying that, out of, you know, out I'll say that and we'll move on. That's a very hard thing to do, I think, in our lives. Leaving complicated matters of family, of life, of thought, of fear, leaving it in the hands of Jesus and saying, hey, whatever he does, it'll be the right thing. That's a very hard thing to say. And then Jesus acts. He sees stone jars. Uh, jars that would have been present at any feast like this because they were necessary for ritual washing. Maybe for the hands and for the utensils. And these are large jars. I mean, so we're talking stone jars here capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. So can we do our quick math here? That's about 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And that's a lot of wine, right? Right? And Jesus tells the servants to fill the water jars up to the brim. Now there's a controversy in the text. He says there are six jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. Now, a natural read of this, I think we go, well, it's self-evident. He's taking the They're, they're taking the water out of the jars. But the way in which the language is working, that's actually not as self-evident as we might think. In other words, and I'm I'm not sure what we do with this, but some commentators will say Jesus told them fill all these jars for ritual purity up and then now go draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. Where from? Well, from the well. The drawing out language here is not from the the stone jars, but actually from the well. So you take the water out from the well. Why? Because I'm showing you a new path. There's a new path beyond the ritual purity that you used to know. The, the, the older path that you knew about what it mean, meant to be in right communion with our Father, I'm going to show you a new way, a better way. A way that's not discordant with the old way, but a way that is properly understood as something that's new. I, I'm not sure, I'm, I don't have a dog in that interpretive fight all that much, but it is interesting, and nevertheless, now they take some uh, water here and they take it to the master of the feast, and here's where it gets fun. I love this, it's great. Well, I don't know how many days we're into this, but the master of the banquet, presumably the groom's father, he must have a pretty good nose for wine. And the stuff that he's drinking now, it's first rate. You know, it's not the two gallon thing, the box wine, whatever. It's not that stuff. Not that. It's good stuff. So I don't know. Maybe he's he tasted and. There's a compound of flavors here: fruit, earth, acid, minerals, balancing all together in one way or another. I, I've bought the wine bible and I'm starting to learn some of this stuff, right? <laughs> but this is this is special, and it's good wine. And the master understands why this is so surprising. We're several days into this feast, Now people have been drinking quite a bit. Now I grew up in a teetotaling world. Any of you grew up in a teetotaling world? Yeah. This text was always a hard one, frankly, in my world, because I didn't grow up in a teetotaling world. In the sense of, um, um, we just do this out of preference. It was a matter of of morality and conscience. I mean, so it was it was a big deal, right? And um, you know, so this text was always hard because here's Jesus, you know, starting his public ministry by making something that I wasn't. We weren't supposed to touch. You know, that, that's problem number one. And then problem number two was. What do you do with this text here? In other words, what? Wh- and I, I've heard them. I've heard the sermons. I mean, you, you talk about some hermeneutical, I mean, interpretive uh, tightrope tight walking, right? Why is it when you're several days into the feast, they can't tell good wine from bad wine? I, w- I remember being told growing up, right, by very crafty interpreters. Well, the reason why is if you drink enough wine, your palate kind of gets kind of funny and And uh, after a while, you really can't distinguish good wine from bad wine. So that's why they give you the good stuff first. Because later on, your palate can't really distinguish it. And if that helps them sleep sleep at night, sleep away. But that's not what the text says. The text says because they they are drunk. I don't know how to say that. They're inebriated. You know why they can't tell good wine from bad wine? Because they don't care anymore. It's like, (laughs) just bring whatever. Just bring it over here. Um, so there are days into this feast, there's been a lot of drinking going on, and here's Jesus, I don't know, he's, he's, you know, he's enabling them, I guess, wants we'll to talk to Jesus about that in heaven. Uh, but he's made really good wine here, and they realize that this is uh, not the way it's supposed to be. So it's a good story, isn't it? Um, matter of fact, it's a story that I hope we get to see replayed on the big screen in heaven someday if such things happen. And that's the surface account of the story. That's our first read of the story. And it's a sufficient reading. There's enough here. Um, Jesus is beginning His earthly ministry. He's revealing His glory. He's showing His own creative properties. The fact that He's the Creator and that He can change the property of water into the property of wine. That He can do that. He's the Creator. He has the ability to speak. And that thing happens. And... We're supposed to believe him because of that. And so on the first reading, that's fine. And that's enough, and we can all, you know, go home. But John's gospel always wants you to think about more. It does. This is how John works. And there's so much more on offer in this narrative beyond just this surface account. And the surface account I don't mean to downplay. It is enough. It's a good account. I want to give you just two. Number one. On the secondary reading. The Canaan miracle takes place on the seventh day of Jesus' public ministry. Right? So, let's do the math. Uh, John was baptizing. And that's day number one. Then it says in verse 29. And now, this is how John is saying it. The next day. Right? So that's day number two. Then verse 35 says, and the next day. Right. And then verse 43 says, the next day, that's four. And then you go to chapter two, verse one, and it says, on the third day. So four plus three is seven. Right. He's beginning his gospel ministry here, his first act of unveiling on the seventh day of his public ministry. Now let me I just you know stop here for a second because some of you are already like oh this this whole number stuff gets goofy and it does to me too right in other words I'm real leery about um, you know people say if you turn to Nehemiah and read the Hebrew backwards there you'll see that JFK dies on you know I mean that's I just not yeah I don't like that and sometimes the number stuff can feel that way it feels um, gnostic and spooky uh, and and I don't like that either but this is rather intentional here isn't it. Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, we've already been given a creation context for Jesus' ministry and person and work. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. John's Gospel is already telling us that our understanding of Jesus and His relationship to the Father and the world is primarily to be understood in, in, in the light of the Genesis account. So whoever this figure was walking around in A.D. 30 or 31 right now, that figure was organically related and essentially related to the beginning of the world and the very activity of God. When there was nothing and then something was, he was the agent that brought all that about. And now, by the way, he's beginning his ministry on the seventh day of his public work. That's significant to my mind. Why is it significant? It's significant because the seventh day of creation and the ordering of the creation days is properly understood as the goal of creation. Not the sixth day, the seventh day. Right? First day, second day, third day, all those begin. And evening and morning it was first day, and evening and morning. And then you get to the seventh day, and it says, and it was morning. There's no evening on the seventh day. Morning. And um, God ceased. God rested from His activity. Now we don't we'll go there, but in John's Gospel, Jesus says, "My Father and I have been working since creation." So you go, "Well, what, I thought you stopped, right?" So what, what's what is what's the relationship here? The seventh day of God's existence, which is the seventh day, is where God resides now in His existence. And Martin Luther, by the way, I may have mentioned this in here, but Martin Luther, in his commentary in Genesis, I think this is interesting. He said, "Let's just pretend Adam and Eve never fell," right, which is. Funky theological speculation, but we'll, we'll let it go. He's Martin Luther, after all. Um, but let, let's pretend Jesus never—I mean that, that Adam, Adam and Eve never fell. Um, they would have led their lives in peace, and harmony, in unity with the created order. There would have been true cosmos. It would have been harmonious. It would have been Eden, right? But at some point, God would have received them and taken them into the seventh day. So even in the way in which the, sev- the days are ordered in a pre-lapsarian, a pre-fall world, God is already living in a future in relationship to His order, created order from which He governs and oversees providentially His created order toward its redemptive end. So what is, if God ceased on the seventh day, what does He ceased from? He ceased from creating. He saw and it was good. He's not creating anymore. He's overseeing His creation. He's providentially ordering His creation. Jesus is the very atomic fabric by which the creation doesn't fly apart. He's doing all of that from there. But He's not creating anymore in that sense. The world has been made. But He's overseeing it and He's seeing to His redemptive purposes from the seventh day. The seventh day is the place by which God redeems humanity and then brings humanity into His very life toward a new creation, which will be the seventh day. And here's Jesus. Jesus. Starting his ministry on the seventh day, which is the proper place from which God does his redemption, his work of redemption with the world. And what is Jesus doing? He's saying, well, here I am on the seventh day. I'm revealing to you that I'm a creator. Look at what I did to this water and this wine. But I'm also letting you know that I'm the redeemer and I'm properly located in the seventh day of God's own existence, bringing the world and bringing redemption toward its proper end. Follow me. And it's not without significance, by the way, that you have seven signs in John's Gospel, right? There's something about perfection there, and order, and creation, and redemption. And here Jesus begins that ministry there. The second thing, uh, if we uh, just the fun stuff, and I won't read it because our time is gone, but Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, six through 8, and many other texts too, link the future banquet of God. The messianic banquet of God. The overcoming of death with the drinking of wine. The messianic banquet is going to have lots of wine at the table. Overflowing with wine. So the messianic age is marked by the enjoyment of wine. In fact, if you remember, I, Micah chapter. Uh, four says in the future day all the nations will stream to Mount Zion they're going to be taught the Torah from God himself and they're going to sit under their own vines and their own fig trees what's the implication? They're going to enjoy the fruit of drinking their own wine and their own figs and they won't even, eating their own figs and they won't even know what war is anymore they won't even know, they have to be reminded about war because it'll be universal peace and what's the peaceful activity? It's sipping a little Chateauneuf du Pop or something like that, all right? <laughs> So, what do we see with Jesus here? He's turning the water into wine. He's showing us that he's operating from the seventh day of his creaturely work, his creative work. But he also shows us that the Messianic banquet has come. And it's lavish. Um, You, you think about this, 120 gallons of first-rate wine if it does come from the jars. Or, if it's coming from the well, an endless supply of wine till the party was over. That's lavish. That's... Overdone. It's overkill. It's super abundant. Just the way the gospel tends to operate. right? It's lavish. And this is a lavish scene with wine flowing in abundance. And Jesus is embodying in that activity, hey, the Messianic banquet is here, and I brought my own wine. right? brought my own wine to the table. Um, and we'll enjoy it together as an anticipation of the cross that will come when He will bring all these things to fruition Um the new creation. Any, any, any thoughts or questions you want to ask? Jerry? Well, the first sign has to do with wine. Projecting it forward then, there is a connection then at that last meal where he says hey, drink that wine. That's oh yes. Banana. Yes, I think so. And this is where, I mean, you'll, and you'll, we'll get into John chapter, well we won't get there, but um, <laughs> uh, John chapter 6 where Jesus talks about eating his you know, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, what's, what are the implications of this? And then you get into the wine images there, at the final foreshadowing. Uh, the foreshadowing. So uh, th- that's the, um, the thing about John's gospel is if you come at it with a hard and fast linear account of history, you know, one thing leads to the next. Leads to the next. If, you, if you come with that mindset to it, I think you might miss some of the ways in which time is actually interrelating within John's gospel. Um, and again, I wouldn't go to the guillotine over this, but you know, in John's gospel, right after John chapter 2, Jesus the, cleanses the temple. So John's gospel puts the cleansing of the temple right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All the other gospels put it right toward the end of his ministry, in fact, give that as the reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He cleansed the temple, and they're like, now we're going to kill him. Um, and so John's gospel puts it at the beginning, The the, the synoptics put it at the end. Some will say, "Well, then we need to give it needs to have happened twice, you know to, to kind of make those things work. And I don't lose sleep over that as much, again, because I don't think narrative history and chronological history um, always need to comport within the Bible. And as the Bibles allowed to allow time itself, because we're talking about God, to become somewhat fluid. And I'm not talking about myth. I'm not talking about you know escaping from the time space realities, but I'm just saying the way in which time is construed, and the way in which it relates to one another in the life of God—that's something where I think John says you're going to have to have some flexibility on this, because I'm making a theological account of Jesus's life here um, that's going to allow me to move some things around in a way that—it's oh, oh, certainly deliberate. Yeah, certainly deliberate. Yeah. Um, thinking about the John Baptist proclamation of you know the whole uh, the Lamb of God, Jesus doesn't tell him not to say anything about that. And then the you have know, the rest of the gospels, he's always like, nope, this is not my time yet, don't talk about that. You know, the best secret life. Again, it's just the relation, you know, it's, it's how John's different. Um, and I'm so glad John's in it, you know, for this reason. because again, you know, I mentioned Aquinas, I think, last week or maybe the week before, but the, the icon that's often used in association with John's gospel is the eagle. Um, and the eagle gives you a bird's eye view of, of the of the of the whole event. And that's what, and so John's gospel is. There, there's no throat clearing, there's no white noise about who this figure actually is. You get it, double barreled from the beginning of the narrative as as it moves on. Whereas, you know, within the other gospels, there tends to be um, a, an unfolding that's taking place in in the in the movement toward the cross. Um, and not that there aren't intimations there, you know, significant intimations. The sto- uh, you know, Clint- Forgiving sins and feeding five thousand. I mean, there's intimations there, but there's this kind of development that's moving, that begin like a flower budding open. And in John's gospel, the, the flower is in full bloom from verse one, and that, that's the way in which it's portrayed. And we need all of them. You know, we need we need all of these gospels in interrelation, to one to another, um, to get you know multiple aspects on this. Um, the, the diamond that is Jesus you know we've got to hold it up to the light in multiple ways and look boy there's a new color being refracted through um and i you know i think i'm grateful that i mean there, this has been a hurdle in the life of the church because people have, people see the complexity because we have four they don't always line up neatly the the, the bolts don't always go naturally fit um but i'm grateful that we have four because it allows us to get angles on Jesus that we wouldn't have otherwise All right um you can some of you need to go yeah yeah Even we're here, we're limited in intellect, we're limited in every way relative to God. Aren't there always going to be things that we won't understand and we're just going to have to... Is that what faith comes in? Certainly, yeah, you know, yeah. We can't pin it all down. No, no. We can't no. parse work because of the difference, the gulf between us. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, this is all, goes all the way back to the early church, the relationship between faith and reason. You know, th- this is a, this is something that we wrestle with in the life of the church. How how the two relate to one another, but within a this a sphere, how, how primarily faith shapes our approach to reason and rationality. And I think what you're saying certainly lines up. Now, I want to be, you know, I, there are uh, legitimate detractors to the faith. I think there are legitim- l- legitimate detractors that one needs to think about. If we find the bones of Jesus, that's really bad news. <laughs> I, I, that's just really bad news if we find Jesus' bones. Um, so there are legitimate detractors. But I think sometimes we create unnecessary hurdles um, that don't take into account the limitations of our of our minds on these matters. Where we 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 move when we're talking about God, we move into the realm of revealed mystery, and the nature of revealed mystery is there's legitimate revelation that corresponds to who He really is, and we can apprehend that and understand it. But it's never exhaustive. It's never because we're talking about God, and the tradition of the church is good at this, I think. It, I mean, the best figures, I'm talking Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, they get this. Our knowledge of God is limited. And our knowledge of God is not the same as God's knowledge of himself. I mean, we need to remember, our, all of our knowledge of God is creaturely in its character. That's not the same kind of knowledge God has about himself. And that that's, a, we, we have to leave a realm of of mystery here when we're talking about, about God. Job. Yeah. And Job. Oh, yeah. you all need to go.